Good evening, everybody. Hope you're doing well. It's Steph. Yes, we're starting in the pit. I finally got myself all set up and have decided to do that before uh, going off to trundle around the, um, uh, the universe trying to uh, get everything up and running within my car. So I hope that you're doing well. I uh, just had a fun day uh, writing uh, an enormous, I've written like, I don't know, nine or ten white papers in this industry for the last, oh, over the last uh, week or a week and a half. And so my brain, she is a spinning with profit optimization, uh, which I guess is also part of what I do, although the spelling is eh, just a tad different. Hang on, let me just shut down the color a little bit here. A little too bright, draining my batteries in ways that uh, we don't need to. So tomorrow... We will talk about love tomorrow morning. Had an excellent post from a uh, fine contributing, almost a contributing editor, a co-editor of Free Domain Radio, the fabulous Greg. And uh, he had questions about uh, love, which I will do uh, what I can to answer. And uh, uh, unfortunately, it's not self-love, so I'm not uh, going to be very good at it. But um, uh, we'll, uh, we'll do our best and try and see. Now, okay, I'm going to try the public roads. Try the public roads. Oh, let's give it a shot. See what happens. But what I'd like to talk to this, uh, uh, talk about this afternoon is uh, it's not uh, exactly a topic which we haven't touched on before, but it's been a long, 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 long time since we have touched on it. And we are going to have a chat about our good friends, the soldiers. Those trigger-happy, um, undereducated, over-propagandized, sociopathic uh, defenders of freedom. Not, not our freedom, unfortunately, uh, but, uh, and not their own, uh, unfortunately, but the freedom to pillage the public purse in the cause of war. And this is not a punishment podcast, uh, although <laughs> it could be considered one. I've talked about this before, and uh, a long-time listener has, has made... Uh, a statement on the boards that I'd like to spend just a minute or two, um, or 30 or 35, uh, talking about about the idea uh, of the voluntary aspects of the military uh, structure in the United States, and I guess throughout most of Western Europe, uh, throughout most of the world. Uh, the worst that occurs in the West, or the sort of Western-style civilizations, is that you have uh, situations where... Um, people are uh, in, inculcated into the army for uh, two years or whatever, sort of after they graduate from high school or whatever. This happens in Israel. It used to happen in South Africa. It's one of the reasons that uh, my father taught uh, occasionally at a university in South Africa, and uh, more than occasionally. And so I could have got free university if I went to South Africa, but in exchange I would have had to squat in the uh, sickly state trenches of <laughs> military obedience for a couple of years, and that really, even when I was 15 or so and looking into that and dirt broke, that wasn't going to happen <laughs> anytime soon. Or any lifetime like, you know, this one. But there is still quite a strong idea within uh, thinkers, uh, and I guess non-thinkers too, that, sorry, let me try, concentrate, concentrate. <laughs> um, there is a, a strong belief that there's something different, fundamentally different, about a what is called a volunteer army, i.e. a non-draft situation, and a draft uh, uh, army. And I'm here to tell you that there's really not that much of a difference between them, 
And let me sort of go into why, and then you can tell me how I'm abysmally wrong. Now, there are a number of factors wherein we really can uh, look at uh, things that devolve or diminish the capacity uh, for people to, to experience or to exercise their free will. Now, if it was a volunteer army and the voluntary aspect of it was a significant component of the, uh, arm, of the army, then you would expect, if, if this was really the major thing that was occurring was voluntarism, that the recruits would be spread across a racial, a geographic, a class, and income lines. Uh, sadly, of course, it's not the case at all. In the, I'm not just going to talk about the United States for the most part, but this is the only thing I have uh, scraps of knowledge about. And the one thing that is, is fairly clear or, or fairly easy to understand is that it's a preponderance of uneducated, young, poor, minority males. Uh, they form the vast proportion of what goes on in uh, the military recruiting areas, right? And so... To say that it's all purely voluntary, and I'm not saying everyone's saying it's purely voluntary, but to focus on the sort of voluntary aspects of it when this is really what's occurring, I think is a, a huge mistake because because just because one aspect of it is not coerced by the state doesn't mean that, you know, like the draft makes it 100%. For like a universal draft would be 100%. The draft that comes in, the lottery draft is, you know, 80%. Uh, maybe a coercion, and then you know the, this the army that we have right now is maybe seventy percent in terms of coercion, so I think it 's important to understand the factors that go into uh, getting people into the army and well these aren 't in any particular order, but I think it 's worth having a, having a look at them so first and foremost, of course, is the issue of propaganda right so these uh, these impressionable and often not overly bright young men are stuffed into the um, state schools for 14 years in a row and are fed the most appalling propaganda about war and the heroism of it and the you know, flags of our fathers and all that kind of crap. And they are not uh, given a shred of truth. Uh, they are given endless amounts of propaganda. And so you could say, and you know, I could sort of reasonably understand why you would, you could say that a soldier uh, is voluntarily going into the army in the same way that uh, a communist who's raised uh, as a communist in Stalinist Russia turns out to be a communist, like a young man who's raised, goes through all of these Stalinist schools, turns out to be a communist. Well, we really don't know what this human being would have turned out to be in the absence of, uh, of propaganda. And so since we have 14 years of propaganda, and some of this propaganda is somewhat regional, right? So in the U.S., it's generally the South that provides the, uh, the army, right? I mean, this is the hangover of a variety of factors that we don't need to get into here, slavery not being the least among them. But the South produces a preponderance of military men, and that's because in the South there's this sort of Confederate martial uh, gun-loving, uh, and by gun-loving that doesn't mean always First Amendment loving, but uh, Fourth Amendment loving, but... It means uh, the, uh, the love of the military, the respect for the military, our fighting boys in green or whatever. And this uh, Semper Fi nonsense. <laughs> and, um, 
Uh, so there's an enormous amount of propaganda that goes on, and this is not only, of course, in the uh, schools, but it is also, uh, and sometimes more so as an adult, occurs through the media, which is a total slave to the state. I mean, the media is, is I mean, the general media, right, is a complete slave to the state. And so uh, all you ever get is you know, Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? I mean, <laughs> this is what was emblazoned. And these things are quite important, right? Why would you name something the uh, the name that the government gives it, right? As the media, everyone said, Operation Iraqi Freedom, right? So uh, Iraq, freedom, good, good, good. Let's go free Iraq. And uh, I'm sure that um, uh, Hitler had a, you know, Operation Free Poland uh, was the name of his uh, uh, his blitzkrieg on Poland in 39. But I have not yet read a single history book that has given the name of the uh, uh, the despotic battles that occur. I'm sure the Iron Curtain was like the curtain of light to liberate Eastern Europe in some of Stalin's uh, phraseology. But uh, you don't really, unfortunately, you don't really see that kind of stuff. It's, it's very sad, but you don't really see this kind of stuff in history books where you refer to, um, to what is going on uh, in the terms of those in power when those in power are considered bad, right? So you don't have uh, Jews writing a lot of books on the final solution. They refer to it as the Holocaust, although Hitler referred to it, I think, as the final solution. And so if there was a, if a, a, um, uh, if a media outlet were to talk about the Holocaust as the final solution, they would be decried as you know, Holocaust deniers and uh, evil and uh, supporting Nazism and so on. But, of course, uh, whenever it's our propaganda that's, uh, that's churning away, the media sort of gleefully swallows it and just lets rip with, um, <laughs> you know, all of the nonsense that you would expect uh, to come out of these kinds of uh, arms of the government, so to speak. So uh, they get all of this stuff about supporting the troops and about, um, uh, you know, loving God and country and service and honor and sacrifice and the ultimate sacrifice and all this kind of stuff. And... So they get all of this stuff, and it really is not uh, – and then all of this stuff is forced upon people, right? I mean, they're forced to pay for state schools. Uh, the media is uh, pretty much held at uh, knife point. I mean, the, they don't seem to have too many problems participating, but that's also true of children in abusive parental situations. So we'll give them uh, – we'll cut them a wee bit of slack. But uh, the media is uh, sort of a hostage that's held at gunpoint, right, uh, or held at knife point. You know, all those scenes in the movies where <laughs> – you know, the phone rings and the killer is with the victim and the killer says to the victim, uh, you know, act normal, pick up the phone and act normal like there's no knife at your throat. And, uh, <laughs> of course, that's the role of the media, right? They're held hostage by the government and they're trying to pretend on the phone, <laughs> you know, that everything's normal. And we're all there going, oh, oh that's great, man. <laughs> everything's normal. Yeah. <laughs> And so, uh, based on the public schools and, um, and of course, the historical uh, relationship with a lot of military families to the military where it just becomes an unquestioned thing about service and honor and valor and, and so on. And state schools, uh, state uh, hostage media and so on. You just don't get a lot of reality checks about what goes on uh, in the military and what the purpose and role and moral nature of the military is. So all of that stuff is forced and coerced and bludgeoned, and you have to pay for the state schools, and you have to pay for the people who hold the media hostage, and you have to do all of this sort of stuff. So 
they don't get any exposure to anything other, a uh, very little other than a continual stream of bat piss propaganda that comes out of the snout of the uh, the Antwerp we call the state. <laughs> oh, one too many metaphors, I'm afraid. I I heard that Keystone crack myself as well. So that's sort of one aspect of it. They don't get any kind of clear information about anything. Now, the other thing that's interesting is that uh, these people tend to be um, obviously fairly uneducated. I think that the Army has given up uh, the requirement for high school, and I think now if you can lick an X on the paper, you're in, um, as long as you use your own tongue. And so now uh, what is uh, also important to understand is that they're badly educated. Not only are they educated in state schools, but they're educated in bad state schools, right? So and these are people who have... Who are, who are spat out from state schools with no practical skills whatsoever, no capacity to do anything economically productive whatsoever. I mean, and you and I, you know, you who have the language skills to listen to this and me who have the language skills to fake a really, you know, a verbose podcast, we really can't understand what it's like to not be able to fill out a job application, right? To, to barely be able to write a sentence, uh, to be functionally illiterate, uh, to, to really have no clue how to really interpret and follow written instructions. But this is after 14 years of public school education. These are the kinds of, of uh, you know, human wrecks that are being spat out, these sort of destroyed, preyed-upon husks of uh, formerly competent human or potentially competent human beings. You know, this is the kind of stuff that's being thrust out into the marketplace from the state schools and from these, you know, horribly wretched, backwards, welfare-ridden, uh, crime-ridden, drug-ridden, rural idiocy kinds of uh, communities that are all sort of created and fostered by uh, the state. So, I mean, state policies, as we know, have had enormous impacts on uh, sort of destroying the uh, the family uh, units, uh, has had uh, preventing marriage, uh, common law stuff, single parents uh, have, uh, through the use of public housing, uh, crowded together enormous numbers of barely functional, barely literate people uh, in these sort of uh, poverty gulags. And so the kind of environment that produces the people to whom uh, soldiering seems like a pretty darn good deal, it's kind of hard for us to understand because we're just not in those situations. Right? I mean, I graduated uh, high school with a, you know, I was reading philosophy. I was doing all the, I bet you were the same thing too, right? reading uh, and, uh, and uh, not, you know, not big print, not pop-up books, but like real books. And... So you had uh, all of these uh, capacities just innate, right? Maybe you came from a reading style of family, or maybe you just have sort of innate intelligence or, or whatever. But y I would say that you and I have a tough time understanding what it's like to be this kind of human jetsam that comes spewing out from the public school system, uh, you know, with, without the capacity to do little more than sort of tie shoelaces and cheer for your local sports team and play video games, right? That's sort of the basis of uh, where, where these people are. And all of that is a result of an enormous amount of herding and control and state policies and all, all the sort of socialized uh, stuff that goes on in Western uh, civilization uh, is sort of directly to produce these Judge Dredd, Mr. Roboto, fantasy war hero Van Damme idiots, right? And... Idiots is a bit cruel because these are people who don't really have much of a chance, right? I mean, the only thing I ever learned of value was the stuff I learned outside of school. If you don't really have that environment or capacity or opportunity or innate ability, if it's not nurtured or anything, then it's going to be very hard for you 
to uh, be able to escape that kind of trap. Now, those traps will exist in a free society as well, but to a much, 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 much lesser degree. And you know, people who are on the lookout for talent will constantly be trawling uh, the, um, the schools in uh, poorer neighborhoods just to find the people who are going to enhance their own school's reputation in the way that you know, scouts from the majors and the minors go around uh, high schools looking at people who have particular athletic abilities in the hopes of yanking them up and making money. Uh, the same thing would occur. So at least kids who have talent would get access to uh, more and uh, greater educational capacities. These are all things that, anyway, we don't have to go into the side of how all these things get solved because I have a couple of thou podcasts on those. But uh, this is sort of a sort of a central aspect, right? So there's a critically bad education uh, for producing people with no skills, very few options, very uh, few, uh, almost to none, except for sort of the idiot animal strength in their backs, uh, their sort of uh, two-legged oxen capacities, that's really uh, all that they can bring to the table is, uh, you know, hoisting and toting and this kind of stuff, right, which is a pretty sad and pathetic life of never being able to move out of your parents' house and never being able to have a girlfriend and never getting anywhere and never seeing the world and facing a future of, you know, barely being a waiter uh, for the rest of your life, and that's all uh, largely to do with sort of the, an excess and consolidation and the destructive nature of state power. So the next thing that has occurred, of course, is that there used to be uh, a much stronger path to the middle class for the un undereducated or for the uneducated, and that was uh, manual labor uh, leading to you know either unionized or non-unionized but uh, fairly lucrative uh, work. And from there, you could at least put your kids through college, and you could have a pretty decent income in a, a blue-collar a blue collar job. And that was your sort of route. That's the traditional route for immigrants to get out of that sort of first-round immigrant experience. Now, in very many sections of um, the United States, and in many other Western countries as well, particularly in Western Europe, that has uh, largely been closed off. And it's been largely closed off due to sort of union slash state slash health and safety slash environmental regulations slash, you know, ridiculous trade laws, mercantilist policies for larger organizations, the draining of resources towards the military-industrial complex combined with the high uh, barriers to entry for those uh, industrial military-industrial concerns. And so you sort of put all of that together, and you can, I think, get a fairly clear sense that not only has public education gotten immeasurably worse over the past, say, 30, 40, 50 years, but uh, I mean, in particular after the early 70s when it basically became impossible to fire teachers. I mean, the, the, uh, the public school educational system has gotten immeasurably worse. And you and I, I mean, assuming that you're over, I don't know, 30, I mean, we really 25 or 30. We can't even figure out how bad it is now because at least we had the momentum of the teachers who existed back then. Uh, who sort of kept on with their same way of doing things uh, the way that they had learned before. So we, I don't think, have a very strong idea at all just how bad things have gotten uh, for a lot of people. And, of course, if you're in some, you know, one shoelace rural Alabama kind of town, then it's even worse because the teachers don't want to come and teach there. I mean, there's not a lot of people who graduate from teachers' college in Manhattan who want to go to, like, uh, you know, bumhole Alabama to go and teach in the Blue Blue Mountains or whatever, the blue, the blue bluegrass, Blue Hills, some, there's something to do with blue and, and vegetation, those mountains, those places. So, uh, you know, Jiminy Hicksville is not where you want to end up 
and so generally it's you know the the the, re, the rejects the retards the lowest of the low the the emotionally abusive the drunk the the, the uh, sexually assaultive the violent the vile all of these people end up out in these kinds of places right i mean normally what would happen of course in a free market situation the rents for these places would be a lot lower and the salaries for skilled professionals who uh, were required in these communities would be higher and so you could make a fairly good case for it would all end up being equal right it would just be a matter of of um, a lifestyle choice right did you like do you like the open hills but you would get paid a lot more right whereas at these places living conditions are worse uh, and the salaries are lower right as opposed to how it would be in the free market where it would all balance out It'd be a matter of, in the free market it's always just ends up being a matter of lifestyle choice it's never a clear-cut thing one way or the other that requires state intervention to stack the deck that way but these um, uh, this sort of path through manual labor to sort of foreman to some low or maybe even mid-level manager if that's uh, I mean that that role or that uh, career path is is done pretty much for the most part unless you know someone who can get you into a union and, you, and you're willing to do even more brain dead work during the apprenticeship programs that last 12 lifetimes longer than they should this uh, this kind of path is is cut off right so these people are their brains are ground into a fine statist paste uh, full of propaganda and retarded uh, chanting slogan idiocy and pro-statist, pro-warfare kind of, sorry, it could be uh, anti-statist, but it will definitely be pro-military kind of propagandistic uh, fog. They're spat out with virtually no uh, viable economic skills into a marketplace where there's almost no leg up. Uh, there's, no, there's no entry for them into any kind of, uh, any kind of position. And this is all the result of status power. It's all the result of status power. So then, you know, a Billy Joe, jo a Billy Joe Bob Two Barrels is uh, strolling around the mall, uh, got nothing to buy anything with, has got no future, can barely read, can barely write, has no clue what's going on in the world, is living a life of base animal, moment-to-moment -moment, uh, lust and anger and <laughs> disappointment and boredom and frustration and anger and lust. And, I mean, it's a moment-by-moment -moment kaleidoscopic base biological prick of the spine electrical cord kind of stuff and no one's ever paid any interest uh, to him no one's ever taken any uh, put, put in any investment in him he's never been mentored nobody in authority nobody's ever wanted to talk to him i mean it's a pretty sad depressed lonely existence and likely he doesn't have a father and he wants to make something of his life he wants to do something with his life he gets a sense that his capacities and his possibilities are all just kind of slowly, slowly, slowly slipping away. That he's, um, like imagine a, imagine a statue made of sand in a high wind. It just it blows away and erodes and goes into the wind and goes into clouds and goes into dust and goes into nothing. That's how he sees his future. And that's how he experiences his present, that it's all just kind of fading away into nothing. Ooh, going to the fast lane. Well, it's public roads. So it's not that fast. But. Uh, this is the experience of these people. And then, of course, one day they're out there at the mall, and somebody walks up to them and calls them son and is friendly and uh, gives them all these promises, promises all this great future. You'll get money for college. 
uh, you'll get trained, you'll get a profession, you know, we'll give you a proper education, we'll give you cash, you'll get respect, you'll get something great for your resume, you'll get a network of people who want to help you, you can choose to stay in the army and retire at the age of 40, uh, and you can do this and you can do that, and there'll be buddies and there'll be friends, there'll be a place to go, there'll be hot meals, there'll be travel, there'll be excitement, there'll be, you know, all of this kind of stuff. And, you know, for most of this uh, kid's life, he's been told to sit in the back and shut up and not learn anything. And he's been bored and he's been resentful and he's been lonely and he's felt underappreciated. And he's felt that nobody gives a rat's ass about whether he lives or dies. And now suddenly somebody's wooing him and taking him out for lunch and telling him what a great guy he is. And, and then the, uh, the whiplash effect of propaganda comes up and coils him, fastens like a sick cobra on the back of his neck, injecting the venom of vir <laughs> virtuous bloodlust into his brain and... He gets all these images of charging up the hill and being a hero, and uh, everyone's going to respect him for the rest of his life, and there's going to be chicks who dig him because chicks dig the military man. I love a man in uniform and all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of heady for a guy who's never had anyone pay any interest or attention or give him a time of day before. And he's lied to. I mean, it's not remember, it's not forget that, right? Oh, if you don't like it after six weeks of basic training, you can cop out. Nope, not so much. Got to keep going. Oh, after a year, if you don't like it, you can cop out. Ooh, sorry, stopgap measures are in. Now we've got you for the next 20 years. Right, so there's not really quite as much voluntary aspects to that as you might at first glance think when you're comparing that kind of process or that kind of procedure to a draft situation. And of course, uh, well, Noam Chomsky supports a draft army because it, uh, it's one of the things that began to bring Vietnam down was, of course, when the, uh, when the draft began snatching away the beloved sons of middle class and rich. Oh, I don't think the rich ever had it, uh, had it occur. But when it began to snatch away the beloved sons of the middle class, then suddenly everyone got all hot and bothered because it wasn't just like anonymous uh, black southern retarded kids who were out there getting killed, but things became Ooh, just a tad more immediate than they had been before. So that's not really exactly what you would think of as sort of a purely uh, voluntary kind of situation. And that's sort of what it is that I'm trying to get at here. Uh, just to, to look at, you know, to try and empathize with the people who are going through these kinds of choices. Now, I know you can send me all these emails if you want and post on the board as, as freely as you like to tell me, Steph, how come are you being talking to these people that are evil sociopaths and blah, 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 blah. Yeah, I get all of that. I get all of that. But people respond to incentives. And yes, it is a particular kind of person who's going to end up responding to these incentives. I don't think it's good that they do it. I think the foundation of the military is one of the greatest evils, if not the greatest evil of an ethic, uh, which is the hitman ethic uh, in the history of the world. But the basic fact of the matter is that people respond to incentives and I think that it's a failure of empathy, uh, not that I'm saying this is true of anybody in particular, but I think it's a failure of empathy if you say, well, it must be voluntary because I wouldn't do it, but people are doing it, and since I choose not to do it, uh, me comfortably tucked away in an arts degree at a nice college, since I choose not to do it, it must be voluntary for other people. Well, I don't think that's the case. I think we kind of need to put ourselves in the... Uh, you know, horrible Iraqi baked hobnail boots of these people and see how, how the hell they got there. Why would people end up making such wildly divergent decisions? And wouldn't it be the case, really, since we've talked about this in the recognize your own capacity for evil uh, situation, that if you and I were born in uh, butt plug Alabama, then we may well end up in the military thinking we were the biggest, uh, baddest, badassest kind of heroes ever to walk the face of the earth.
and we would be back-slapping, uh, adrenaline-pumping, uh, hearty melodies kind of people as well. And uh, then it would be uh, sort of it would be an important thing to understand that that was possible, so that we can understand how people end up where they are, and we can understand how the power of the state and the power of public schools and propaganda, all the same thing really, and the church to some degree, the onward Christian soldier stuff, how the power of the state, how the power of centralized violence uh, snakes into, destroys, corrupts, undermines and idiotifies, <laughs> turns into idiots, uh, just about uh, everyone uh, in, to one degree or another. And so that's sort of another, another aspect or an area that I think is very, very important to understand about, about the military and how people end up there. And how you and I, under, you know, mildly different circumstances in many ways, you know, uh, a hundred miles from a town. Uh, if we'd been born there instead, we may very well have ended up in this kind of situation. So let's have empathy for the forces that have acted. Let's have empathy for the people that the forces have acted on to such a degree that they end up in these kinds of situations. And that it is a very long journey of statism that puts people, that dumps them into uh, a Humvee uh, and dumps the Humvee over an IED especially those new shrapnel armor-piercing IEDs. It's a long status journey that gets people from A to B there, or A to Z. And I would say let's have a little bit of empathy for the, the circumstances that put people into this kind of decision matrix. And, yeah, I think it's still wrong to choose to go into the military because if these, you ask these people, should you shoot people just because someone tells you to, they'd say, no, this is different, I'm following orders. Because, <laughs> you know, when you change the language... Uh, reality changes. You know, when I call the sun the moon, everything goes dark. It's uh, it's pretty cool. I'd, I'd do it right now, but uh, uh, my pupils have uh, just uh, relaxed into the night, and I certainly would not want to uh, um, uh, find a grope ram for my sunglasses. So otherwise, I would. Right? So let's talk about the final sort of component, and there's many, many others, but let's talk about the final component that's the major one, at least for me, in this sort of, quote, voluntary nature of the military. And that, of course, is you and I. Uh, we, uh, we few, we happy few, we slowly getting fewer uh, taxpayers. <laughs> it all comes down to demographics, right? That's why one of the reasons why the Muslim world poses such danger. But we as taxpayers, are the fundamental driver behind this whole situation. Right? It's a very, very important thing to understand. You and I, as taxpayers, are the reason that there is a military. Right? Without taxes, there is no such thing as a military in any way that we would understand it. There is no such thing as the military in any way that we would understand it in the absence of taxation. So... You could, if, if you wanted to forego all of the conclusion and say, Bass, Def, that's just a bunch of influences, everyone's still responsible, it's voluntary. Well, we could debate that. But, but still, all of that fail, uh, fades and fails before the final criteria, which is that the, so you can call the soldiers voluntary, but the taxpayers, taxpayers are always drafted. There's always a draft for the taxpayers. So... That's an important thing in its sort of essence 
to understand about the military and to understand about the state and its relationship to warfare. Uh, I've written, I think it was on antiwar.com, I've had an article published, uh, the state is the health of war. And this is old statement that war is the health of state. Well, the state is the health of war. That without the state, you simply can't have warfare. You can have defense against idiot aggressors, but you can't have warfare in the way that we understand it. And the growth of the state that occurred after the state figured out what uh, fat cows ripe for preying upon the Industrial Revolution had produced in the 19th century, the wars of the 20th century, were uh, ample evidence of this, that when you become rich as a culture, sort of uh, when you become prosperous, that's when you begin to really lose your freedoms because that draws more and more statist assholes to prey upon the wealth of the uh, increasingly complacent sheep uh, chewing away on their imaginary cut of democracy and imagining that they're just about to be asked to sit down at the farmer's table to decide what's going what's to be on the uh, plates for dinner. But you can't have the existing kind of system of uh, even as a sort of, quote, voluntary army without coercive taxation. So there is almost no uh, voluntary aspect to what occurs in the existing military. I think thinking of the military in terms of draft versus non-draft is a specious and frankly quite dangerous distinction because I think it creates a dichotomy where one doesn't really exist. And it's like saying, well, the guy in the maximum security prison is a real slave. Boy, that's terrible. But you know the guy in the medium security prison? It's totally different. Well, uh, it's really not. And the people who are always perpetually enslaved in uh, the welfare sort of warfare state are always, always, always and forevermore you and I, the taxpayers, and we are the ones who are drafted. And, oh, <laughs> my, my phone, I'll... I'll grab it in a moment. Ooh, look, we finally have some music for Freedom Aim Radio that isn't me yowling away into the microphone. Anyway, uh, I hope that this helps at least explain where it is that I'm coming from in terms of understanding and analyzing uh, how we can look at voluntarism versus coercion within the realm of the military. I think it's a very fruitful topic, and uh, I look forward to your voluntary, non-drafted, <laughs> non-coerced uh, anarcho-capitalist donations to the course. I really appreciate you listening. Thank you so much, as always. I will talk to you soon. Oh, and welcome to the new uh, commie board member. Uh, I certainly look forward to having some stirring debates, let's say. <laughs>